0: from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I'm going to go down the um, Bible memory work, the catechism on the table of duties and civil government. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Romans 13one 2 Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's evening prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. um, So I apologize for not being here. Last week had an emergency hospital visit come up. But I hope you enjoyed Vicar Bennett uh, teaching. So that is all good. But if you remember, we had left off in chapter 1 in Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, and we had gotten through uh, uh, verse 39. So we're going to pick up verse 40 of the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we'll see how far we get. Um, Maybe if we're really, really lucky, we'll get through chapter 2. So um, that is the plan for today. All right, so... If you remember the, the context of where we were at, uh, Jesus had started his Galilean ministry, and he was going out and he was preaching and teaching. And uh, he, we, we saw that his focus wanted to be on preaching, right? But what people were really interested in was all the healings. And he kept uh, healing people. He couldn't help himself but to heal people, but it was causing these massive crowds uh, to gather around him, right? So uh, that's kind of where we, where we picked up. So, so this is that verse starting at verse 40. Now, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. All right, so uh, first of all, we should probably talk a little bit about what leprosy is and uh, this idea of the leper that comes to Jesus. Leprosy, as, as I'm sure you're aware, is this skin disease that is somewhat common, in, uh, especially in the Old Testament and, and the time of Jesus. And the, things, the thing about leprosy is that in the Old Testament, you get these laws based on if someone is clean or not, and leprosy is something that makes someone unclean. These skin diseases are something that makes someone unclean. Now, the idea of cleanliness in the Old Testament, and this is actually connected to what we've been talking about with Jesus and his and his healings, his miracles, is not that uh, there's, there's a difference between cleanliness and righteousness in the, Old Des- in the Old Testament, right? So just because someone is unclean doesn't mean that they've committed some sort of sin. But the idea about cleanliness is that Cleanliness is requisite to be able to enter the temple and be in the presence of God. Now, someone is made unrighteous and unholy and therefore unable to be in the presence of God when they have sin that has not been atoned for. But there's also this other idea connected to holiness of of cleanliness. And what cleanliness has to do with is this idea of a holy God wanting to be with a holy people and the holy God not being able to be uh, with an unholy people. So the word holiness, it means set apart, right? This is kind of Sunday school definition, right? Set apart. And I would say holiness is what makes God God because he's the creator and everything else is creation, so God is holy, uh, that's one of, if, if not the uh, main characteristic of God, is that, that he is holy, he's set apart. And um, this sometimes gets translated in the Bible, and I think this is helpful, as the word perfect. But when we think about the term perfect, oftentimes we think about like without any kind of... Um, We think about like moral perfection, like someone never makes a mistake. But the word perfect or holy in the scriptures isn't really talking about that. It's it's more talking about is someone or something fully what it is meant to be, right? So God is holy. He's set apart in that he is fully the creator. No one else is the creator, right? He is holy and perfect and that he is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal trinity, perfect in every way, totally what he is supposed to be, Right? if that makes sense. It's kind of an abstract concept. But then God invites us into his perfection, into his holiness. He wants to set us apart because we are made in his image. This also goes back to being made in the image of God. He wants us to be perfect in that he wants to give this to us in being what we could call fully human, right? Or fully what we are supposed to be. Now, of course, in one sense we could say, well, you know, we're all fully human because we have bodies and souls, okay? So we have the, the things required to be human. We have a body and soul. But to be clean or holy or kind of perfect humans doesn't necessarily mean that we're never gonna make mistakes. But what it means in the Old Testament idea of cleanliness is that we're going to be um, have the full the full nature of humanity as God designed it, right? So this gets us back to leprosy. So the the best way to flesh this out is by no pun intended. Uh, the best way to flesh this out is by look at some examples of things that make people unclean. So leprosy is some something that makes someone unclean because leprosy is not how the human skin is, how, how God created it, right? The The human skin is supposed to be clean and pure, right? And we know this, right? We, you know, this is why people spend so much money on cosmetic products is so they can get their skin to be clean, right, without blemishes, right? Um, this is why why women wear makeup. Right, and so there's there's this ideal of the hu- the human outer flesh, and leprosy is something that affects that. Right, it's this disease, and it, so therefore it makes someone unclean. Right, um, touching a dead body makes someone unclean. Why is that? Because death is not natural. Right, death. Humans were not designed by God to die. Right, death is a consequence of sin. Um, so, touching a dead body, um, whether animal or human, it makes someone unclean in the Old Testament, right? Um, uh, a woman giving birth makes makes her unclean for a certain amount of time. Well, why is that? Well, go back to that uh, the co- the consequences of sin in Genesis three. One of the problems that sin causes in women is an increase in childbirth pain. Right? And so this act of childbirth, however it changes after the fall, um, for whatever reason, it's, it's not the ideal of childbirth. Now, we don't know what the ideal is, right? but um, you can kind of see in these examples that God, that God made man to be a certain way. Right? He made man perfect in every way, in his own image. And the things that affect that in a kind of negative way they're the things in the Old Testament that make people unclean. Now, the thing about that is that there are ways for the people to become clean, right? Um, Either by a certain amount of time or offering certain sacrifices or being approved by a priest to to be clean. Um, God God finds ways to sanctify, to make his people holy again, right? But this idea of holiness um, is this important idea in the Old Testament and, and it carries over in some ways in the New Testament as well because the idea is that God wants to make his people fully what they were meant to be, okay? And this is what we were talking about when we've been talking about Jesus in the gospel so far is that he can't help but heal people, right? He He's going along and he sees people who are in a sense unclean, right? Um, and that they're not, they're not the perfection of what God originally made them to be, right? Now, it doesn't mean that they're, if so, if we say in this sense, when we're talking about someone being unclean or in this sense, you know, um, lacking their full potential, not being fully human, we don't mean that in a moral sense, right? Or an ethical sense. Like we don't mean that uh, that person's, or in a value sense, like that person's less valuable. In fact, Jesus teaches the exact opposite, right? He says that he, he wants to heal these people, he values these people, he wants them to, to be um, fully who they were made to be in the image of God. But sin, the corruption of sin in our world has made these things to be realities and Jesus wants to heal people, right? So he sees people that are, that are sick, that are suffering, that are blind, right, that, that have leprosy and he can't help but heal them, right? So that's kind of the background of some of the things Jesus is doing here and the background of leprosy. Now, one more thing on the leprosy. The thing that is, the reason that leprosy comes up so much is because it poses a kind of unique problem um, in some of the same ways that like blindness poses in John nine with the blind man uh, who Jesus heals. But, but with leprosy, uh, this is well known is that leprosy is incurable by man. All right, so, so some of the things that Jesus deals with are maybe curable or maybe not curable, but they um, aren't necessarily, according to the Old Testament law, always something that makes someone unclean. But leprosy is this kind of unique problem where it's something that makes someone unclean. And, oh, and the other thing is there's, like, so if someone goes blind because they, you know, saw a bright flash of light or if someone, you know, goes deaf because they were around loud noises too much, like, you know what the cause is, right? If someone loses a limb in an accident, you know what the cause is. The other thing about leprosy is there's, there's this aspect of unknown cause. Right, so it's it's almost just random and it's incurable, my man, and it makes someone unclean. And so this creates this situation, right, where you some of the things you've probably heard about leprosy before, people who end up with leprosy end up kind of being these outsiders, right? Shamed by the rest of society. And because they don't fit in. They're unclean and there's really no way to To cure them, and all they can hope for is that it just kind of goes away on its own. And it doesn't always go away on its own, right? And um, so these people had this aspect of shame in society, and there was really nothing that could be done for these people. If you go back and read the Old Testament laws, basically what it boils down to is well, go back to the priest every so often and see if he deems it not leprosy anymore right? And there's all these rules about whether or not it's leprosy. Okay. So leprosy is kind of this big problem because it's something that is preventing these people from being able to be considered clean by the church. And it's preventing them from uh, being able to live a normal life in, in this society. So... Uh, with all of that said, that's kind of the background here of leprosy. So the leper comes to Jesus. And this is, in, in some ways, you can kind of see there with that background how this is like a test for Jesus. Because right? so far he's healed other things, but now we get this leprosy. Right? And leprosy is, is a big problem. And he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Right? If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned to him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, so lots of things here. We get introduced to this new idea with Jesus. Okay, so like I said previously in the Old Testament, if someone had leprosy, there wasn't a lot they could do, right? There were rules in place about how it should be handled, but there wasn't a lot they could do. Jesus has compassion. It's not that the old, in the Old Testament God didn't have compassion. He certainly did. He relented of disaster on Israel many times. But it's not described in this way. And this word um, in in Greek is kind of interesting. It's this word splochna, which is uh, I don't know if you've heard this before, but it's this word for like your insides are turning, right? So the word is like what we would say colloquially in English. Um, I think is a pretty good translation would be like gut-wrenching compassion, right? That the idea of Jesus looks on on this leper and his, he can't help, his insides are turning, right? He's having gut-wrenching compassion. He just, he's breaking for this person, right? Um, this word comes up multiple times throughout the Gospels, is that this is the kind of, this, this compassion, this is what describes the mercy can't, can't write, and grace that, Jesus has on us, right? The the forgiveness, the mercy, and the favor, the grace that Jesus has on us, it's this compassionate mercy, right? Where he he has this intense, emotional, physical, mental uh, love that drives him to help these people, right? And this is, uh, again, kind of revealing what we've been talking about so far when Jesus is walking around, can't help but heal people. He can't help but heal people because he has compassion on them, right? Because he wants them to be fully who God made them to be, right? He wants them to be restored, right? He wants to restore creation. And so he has, he has this gut-wrenching compassion on them. All right, so he stretches out his hand and touches him and says, I am willing, be cleansed, okay? So here, a couple things. We have this idea of willing, Right, which is um, that whatever Christ wills will happen. Right, it shows His authority. It shows His His divinity. And then we also have this idea of that He speaks and it happens. Right, He says, "Be cleansed," and the words He speaks happen. Right, so His um, we call this sometimes the uh, like the efficacious word or the enacted word of God that when when Jesus speaks things happen okay so he says be cleansed all right then we get this um let me just make sure I'm not missing anything here yeah then we get this messianic secret idea that that comes up here um yeah I'll put it on here okay so Messianic secret is this term that, I don't know, some, uh, some theologian came up with. It's probably copyrighted. I'm probably not supposed to use it. But um, some theologian came up with a while back. But uh, the idea is trying to use some language here to describe this phenomenon that takes place throughout the Gospels where Jesus tells people, don't tell anyone what happened. Right? Don't tell anyone about me. So this this happens here. It uh, shows up for the first time here in, in Mark. Uh, then in Mark chapter 1, uh, he, as soon as he had spoken, immediate, oh, by the way, we had an immediately there. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said, to see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. So see that you say nothing to anyone. All right, so um, I'll tell you what I think is happening with the Messianic secret. So the last occurrence of this is in chapter nine um we get the last occurrence in chapter nine if you remember our outline of the book of mark chapter nine is basically begins the second section of the book right so we have basically have two sections right? with a little section in, in the middle um we have the galilean ministry and then we have jesus on his way to jerusalem and his crucifixion resurrection so on and so forth right so we have galilean ministry and then the passion more or less chapter nine is really when we shift focuses toward the passion right right around nine ten is when we shift shift focus from the galilean ministry and the last occurrence of the messianic secret happens then i think what the point is and it happens i don't know how many times it happens it probably shows up a half a dozen times at least in mark but The thing that's going on with the Messianic secret is, like we have already mentioned a few times, Jesus doesn't seem like he's really there to heal people, right? Like he does that, but that's not what he intended to do, right? Whenever he gets the chance, when people aren't constantly coming to him, what's he do? He preaches, right? He cares about the word right, the word going out, and and this word that's already come up a number of times, right, the gospel, the good news. This is what he cares about. And what is that gospel, right? The gospel is the cross. And he's constantly worried about how people are going to see him, right? They just think he's this kind of magic miracle worker um, who comes and he heals people with unclean spirits, and he heals lepers, and he heals uh, the sick and the, the palsied and the lame. All right. I can't remember how many, what kinds of things he's all healed so far, but, um, he's, he's constantly healing people and they think he's just going to be this magical miracle worker. And, and his point is, no, stop spreading the word about this. That's not why I came, right? He came to die and to rise again for the forgiveness of sins. That's why he came. And that's what he wants to tell people about Right, so um, this is why, like, he he wants to help people. He can't help but have compassion on them, right? He can't help but to restore creation. So whenever he sees people and people come to him, of course he's going to help them. But um, he tells people, like, hey, this isn't the main point, right? The main point is the cross. And so I think that's what's going on with this uh, messianic secret, for what it's worth. All right. And and then. Um, so what? a couple more things to just point out there in uh, 44. See that you say nothing to anyone, Go, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses had commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, so um, one of the things that kind of happens in the gospels that is interesting to me at least is you have the Old Testament, the Old Covenant right here. And then let's say... Uh, in the you have the New Testament here, right? Where um, it's clearly the time of the New Testament church, right? So think like Acts, right? The the like after Acts two, it's after Acts two. It is very clearly the New Testament church. Okay, so you know from Genesis until uh, let's say starting in Acts three. Right, so after Pentecost, right, or we can just say Pentecost. That probably makes more sense. Um, you have the so, some some remnant of the Old Testament. There's this. Well, actually, let me do this a different way. Let me say, okay. So you have the Old Testament and New Testament, and then you have the New Testament going on, right? And we could all agree that. The new testament is sometime after pentecost right that after pentecost this is the new testament church right the spirit has come right and the new testament church has has begun and they they're working all those things out all right there's this time where the new testament has come jesus has been born but there's still some remnants of the Old Testament here, right? So in the life of Jesus, we'll just say the life of Jesus, it's probably a pretty good time marker. In the life of Jesus, before he's died, resurrected, ascended and sent the spirit, those things all kind of go together, right? From Jesus' death to uh, to Pentecost, those things kind of go together in some way. But during this, especially the life of Jesus, after Jesus has been born, but when Pentecost hasn't hasn't happened yet, you get this kind of overlap time, right, in the church, and that there are people who don't – there are people who immediately recognize Jesus for everything he is and are kind of ready to move on. But then there are a lot of people who recognize Jesus as the Messiah but don't necessarily – move completely on right away, right? And this is one of those examples of where Jesus himself recognizes that there is still something going on, that that the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament covenant is still somewhat in play, right? So what he says is, go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Okay, so Jesus has come. And, you know, this guy could go to heaven, right? Like, he's healed. The leprosy is gone. Um, he is, believes in Jesus, right? He has faith in Jesus. He really doesn't need to go to the temple in one sense, right? Like, he doesn't need these Old Testament laws anymore because these, these laws about holiness, these are all fulfilled in Jesus. Yet Jesus tells him, go ahead and go show yourself to the priest." right and and why is that i think it's because there's this time of overlap right and jesus re- this is the important point jesus respects that right jesus doesn't come to and he he says this much i did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it right he does not come to overthrow what came before and we're actually going to talk a little bit in the sermon today from romans 15 about this uh why the Old Testament is is important for us and why it's still written for our our learning. But the Old Testament is there to bear witness to Jesus. And the Old Covenant is given by God as a good covenant for the people. And Jesus respects that. But he also wants them to move on, right? So this is why he says, um, you still should go to the priest and you should still offer the sacrifices for cleansing of which you've been you know cleansed as Moses commanded, but he also adds this part as a testimony to them right so Jesus does he tells him, the guy you know don't tell anybody anything about me but he does say he kind of hints like but do tell the priest, right let the priest know that the Messiah is here right and that uh, that he's bringing cleansing right so it's it's to me it's a pretty interesting thing where you get this time of overlap you see this like in um in Luke 2, and the, uh, what is it, when the 10 lepers come to Jesus and one one of the guys gets it, right? Like one of the guys turns back and says, and thanks and get, falls on his knees and thanks Jesus. And Jesus says, well, where are the other nine? Did not I heal, you know, did not I not cleanse 10? Because, but it's ironic because Jesus had said this kind of same thing. He said... Um, what, what it, how does that one go? Oh, he says, um, go show yourself to the priest, and on your way you will be saved. And the one guy gets it because he he realizes Jesus is the priest. Right? He realizes Jesus is the new temple. And and so there's basically two temples, right? There's two, there's two priests. There's Jesus, the temple and the priest, and there's the temple and the priest that's in Jerusalem. Right? And uh but they're both. And during this time they're both they're both true. Right? Um, and then after this time and we could also another time period in here would be seventy AD too. Really post seventy AD is like fully the New Testament church because that's when the temple's been destroyed. Right? The the temple's destroyed in seventy A. D. and that's a that's also a huge marker. It's like, okay, now there's really only one temple, Jesus. So anyway, okay. I find that, that stuff fascinating, but Um, moving on. All right, verse 45. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter (laughs) Um, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. So the guy is not very good at listening. And (laughs) he just does the exact opposite of what Jesus asked him to do. But this is, uh, this does kind of show the nature, like what the guy is spreading may not be exactly the gospel, but one of the points Jesus, I think, will kind of make implicitly as he continues to preach in the gospel is that y'all think that this, this healing stuff is so good, right? And we're going to get this in just a second when we get to the paralytic, Y'all think this healing stuff is so good. But I'm, I'm going to tell you something better. I can forgive sins, right? This is the point Jesus makes. And if people are that excited about healing, they should be even more excited to tell people about the forgiveness of sins, right? And this, so this is, this is the evangelism point is like, look at this guy running around telling everyone about how Jesus healed him from leprosy. Why are you not running around telling everyone how Jesus forgives your sins every week? I mean, that's that's even more amazing, all right? So uh, this is this is kind of a good evangelism point, all right? And Jesus can't get away, right? He's stuck. This is the perennial problem for Jesus in the Galilean ministry is he just can't get away, all right? So that brings us to chapter two, making great progress here. Again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Okay, so it sounds like here, if you kind of read in between the lines, he probably like left for a couple days, and I the way I read that is that like he needed to get some time alone, right? He just needed to like at, the way it leaves off at the end of chapter 1, he's literally in the desert, but people keep coming to him from every direction, right? So, um maybe even miraculously, Jesus kind of disappears, right? Because um, not that long after, right, in the next verse, after some days, right? And the the Greek there is rather unclear. So it just says after days, right? So we don't know exactly how many days, right? Maybe a couple days, maybe a few days, maybe 30 days. We don't know, right? After some number of days, it was... uh, heard that he was in the house, right? So he comes back into Capernaum, right, right left. And immediately, and not immediately, I think we get one basically like, it seems like we get just maybe three or four chapter almost, um, many gathered together so that there was no longer any room to receive him, not even near the door. So he literally cannot get away, right? It's like every time he shows up, they're just insane crowds like pressing in on him. All right. And he preached the word to them. Okay? Preached the word to them. Uh, yeah. All right. Um now this is it this kind of a small verse here, and he preached the word to them. But um this is a John does a lot more with this in in his gospel. But Mark does do some of this in his gospel uh in that verse, is that verse three where he says he preached the word to them? Or no, that's verse at the end of verse two. Uh, this is this word logos in the Greek. Logos, the word. And uh, John uses this as a kind of proper title for Jesus. Um, the word, right? In the John's like in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So... Um, there, there's a connection between the the gospel, the good news, and the word, um, because these are the things that Jesus preaches. But in a sense, Jesus himself is the gospel, right? Jesus himself is the word, and this is what he wants to preach, right? Jesus preached the word to them. Him. Now we're gonna come back to that here in uh, in just a minute. So um, I just want to check my notes here. Uh, Oh, actually, I know, I, I missed it. Um, there's this kind of irony. Okay, I knew I, I wanted to talk about this at another spot, but it was actually before this. Okay, so back in chapter one, at the end of, verse, at the end of chapter one in verse 45, whenever, uh, I don't know what your translations say, but whenever the leper goes out and starts to tell people, it says, however, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter. So that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city. What is what do you all translations say? To spread the what? News. The news. Okay. Anyway, they, these uh, translations. This is the problem with English translations: is they'll translate the same word um, with different words, which is fine. In fact, sometimes you have to do that, but you miss certain connections. So um, when it when it says the lepers spread the news or the spread the matter, it's also this word logos. And I think what Mark's doing here is kind of a play on words where he says the leper was spreading the word, right? He was just like, we'd say that, right? Like the guy spread the word, spread the word about this or that thing, right? The guy was spreading the word about Jesus. And then, and then just a couple verses later in verse two, it says that Jesus preached the word, right? Um, right which it's the exact same construction, right? It's the guy spread the word and Jesus preached the word. But you can tell by context, two terribly different words, right? Uh, One is the word about Jesus as a miracle worker. The other is the word that Jesus preaches. And the reason you can tell this is a little bit different is that when Jesus wants to tell you about the word, um, this comes up in chapter 4, with the parable of the sower and the seed, and Jesus explains the parable of the sower and the seed. And what's the seed that is spread? It's the word, right? And it's the word is specifically of the gospel, right? So there's this kind of play, play on words going on, where um, Jesus is contrasting. The, this is really, in some ways, I think this is almost the main theme in Mark. A lot of what we've been talking about here with the Messianic secret too, that there's this big contrast between what people think about Jesus and who Jesus actually is and what he actually came to do. There's this, this big contrast here, right? So it's like there's the news about Jesus and the word about Jesus, but then there is the good news and the word that's going on, okay? And, and this word is, is far more incredible than people even imagine, all right. So he preached the word to them, and they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed with the paralytic on which the paralytic was lying. Okay, so kind of a crazy thing that happens, right? But they people are so excited about Jesus healing, and there's this paralytic. And so... His, the paralytic's four friends um, hatched this plan to open up the roof and to let this guy down through the, the, through the roof. Now, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic's son, your sins are forgiven you. Okay, and notice it says there, their faith. I before E except after C, right? No, that's not right. Is T H E I R there? Yeah, okay. I'm not crazy. I don't know. I can't spell for the life of me. Um, it's really a good thing we have spell check these days. Uh, yeah, their faith, their faith, right? Um, and why does it say their faith? Because there's four of them, but Jesus recognizes not just the faith of the paralytic. Right, of the guy being healed, but his friend's faith. And um, this is uh, it, it's an important lesson, right? That we should help one another come to Jesus. Right, we should we should pray for one another and bring each other to Jesus. Right, so uh, you know that old saying, right? That you can you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Like that's. That's true when it comes to the faith too. Like you could bring someone to the church, you could show someone the word, you could preach to them the gospel and maybe they'll reject it, right? I mean, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit um, doesn't work faith in that heart. That person rejects the, the Holy Spirit, right? But if you have a horse, they still need to drink and you, gotta, you still have to take them to water, right? Like, that, and, and so we should do the same, right? We should, um, even if it doesn't work out, like in this case, it works out. But before Jesus even heals the guy, he recognizes the faith of all of them, right? And like James says, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, like we should help our neighbors come to Jesus, right? We should bring each other to Jesus and we should bring each other to Jesus in prayer too, because Jesus recognizes that. And that's a benefit, right? That's a benefit to the person, right? Like and, and just think about it this way, like if so say you know someone that's not a Christian. And you have a you have a relationship with them. And um you know, maybe you're their only Christian friend. Like if you don't ever bring them to Jesus, if you don't ever share that with them, like they might be missing their only chance. Right? So uh the fact that that these four men binded together to help this man come to Jesus is incredible, and it's a, it's a very good example for us. Okay. Where are we at? Okay, he saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. All right. Now this is, of course, supposed to kind of stand out to you because what has Jesus been doing most of the time so far? He's been healing everyone, right? Whenever they come to him, he's been healing them. This time he sees their faith. And in other words, they trust him. They recognize him for who he is. And he says, your sins are forgiven you. And he doesn't actually heal him right away, right? He doesn't tell him to get up and walk right away. And it's kind of shocking. It's like, I mean, in some sense, you'd think that what are the guys who brought him in the roof thinking? It's like, why do we just do all this work, right? Um, Maybe there's a little bit of doubt going on there. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, right? So they're thinking this through in their heads, which if you remember, we talked about the way of the scribes um, last time or a couple weeks ago, whenever Jesus goes into the temple and starts preaching and it's nothing like what the scribes say. Right, the scribes are these reasoners, right? They're these lawyers, right? They're the, they're the like guys who help you get the best tax advantages. Like that's what the scribes are, right? So they're reasoning in their hearts, in their heads, and they say. Uh, the Greek here is good too. I brought. I was trying to remember the exact construction earlier. Um, they say, yeah. How does, literally, how does this one, right? How does this one say uh, who, who blasphemes, who has the power to blaspheme? How, how do they translate this? Yeah. Why does this man uh, speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? Who has the power to blaspheme like this? but through the God. Okay, yeah, so, um, yeah, but God alone. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, yeah, I don't like that translation there because it's it's missing that, that word, uh, the power who can, right? Well, I guess the word can, but how, what, how do your translations translate that in verse seven? Someone read me verse seven. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God. Alone? Yeah, so... I don't really like any of these translations, but um, the Greek here is interesting because it's, they, they're saying, like, they don't know what to call Jesus, right? They know his name. Like, they've learned his name by now, I think. At least, at least that's my guess, right? Um, but this was kind of similar to when he went into the temple. Wasn't there something about what they called him when they went into the temple? Hmm. Where was that? No, he actually. This I'm. Uh, he went to the synagogue. I mean, not into the temple, right? And they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one having authority, not as the scribes, right? And uh, and then oh, it's the demon that calls him by name, right? So the demons have recognized who Jesus is, and that's why we get the name. I know I was thinking about the name for a reason. So here they. They probably know his name. They know this is Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, he's famous at this point, right? Um, but they say, you can tell, like, they're they're questioning whether or not about his divinity because they say, well, no one can do this but God. And But they don't want to call him divine. And they really don't want to give him, like, the credit. So they say, they're literally like, how does... This one, like they, it's like they don't know what to call it, right? It's a very weird construction in the Greek. When I was reading it, I was like, why do they say like this? This one, right? This guy, like it's not even like really supposed to be a person there. It's like what, who, like who is this basically um, that speaks blasphemies like this, right? Any, um, they say it's a blasphemy, right? Because as they say, no one can forgive sins but God. Okay. Now the other thing that's um, interesting there in the in the greek i just want to point out is um the uh, maybe a better translation would be who has the power to forgive sins but god alone right they use this term i'm not, not trying to do a greek lesson here but it's kind of interesting stuff um they use this term dunatos, dunatos, which is where we get the word like dynamite right so this is like power the uh, the ability to, to do something, right? The power to do something, to force something to happen, right? So um, who who is able to, who has the power to um, make this thing happen, right? Dunitas, who has the power to do this but God alone. And in that sense, they're right, right? Like uh, God is the one who's able to forgive sins. And this is this brings up a theme that we've thought about before, right? Which is this idea that Christ is the son of God, And this is almost a surprise in the gospel, right? Because they've been waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for a king. And they've been waiting for this person to be this great warrior who's going to deliver them from all their troubles. But they did not necessarily think that it was the Son of God, I don't think, right? They, They didn't put that together yet. And if you read the whole Old Testament, I mean, it isn't necessarily exactly clear that it's going to be the Son of God. But then when it is the Son of God, when it is Jesus, it makes so much more sense, right? And then we can read that back into the Old Testament. But um, there's this kind of surprise factor there where they're like, wait, this, is, this isn't this is just the Messiah in a sense, right? This is the Messiah, but it's also the Son of God. And the scribes don't want to believe this, right? The scribes are, are torn up about this. Um, but I want to come back to this Dune Toss thing in just a second. So, uh, okay, we got five minutes. All right. Um, immediately, so I got another immediately there. Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. So again there, we immediately find out that Jesus is the son of God because who else but God can read the hearts of men, right? So he he re- he perceives what they're thinking in their hearts, right? And he says to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Now, what do your translations say there for power? power? Authority. Okay, that's actually probably a better translation because that's a different word than how I translated power there. Um Well, first of all, let me finish reading. Okay. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately he arose and took up his bed and went out of the presence of the mall. Okay. So that word there is this word exousia. And the reason I am doing this whole Greek lesson here is to contrast these words because this is authority. Okay. Now, power is always something by force, right? This is the distinction and definition. Power is something that you do by force. Right? So if someone has the power to do something, they can uh, forcefully make it happen. right? So like if I have the power or the capability, the dunitas, to like lift a, a certain amount of weight, right, then I can force my muscles to do that. right? That's a that's a power. Authority is something that is given from above. All right. I only have authority if it's been given to me to do something. And if it's been given to me to do it, then I also have the power, right? Because the you don't get the authority unless you also have the power. There are things that I have the power to do, but I don't have the authority to do, right? So, like, I could have the... Um, like, I mean, I have, I have the power. This is a silly example, but I just... Randomly thought of it. Like I have the power to like walk out of here right now and drive home, right? But I don't have the authority to do that because I've been given the authority to be here and preach, right? So just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. But Jesus says, not only do I have the power, right, the the dunitas to forgive sins, but I also have the authority to forgive sins, right? It's been given to me from above right and it's it's been given to me by my by my father ultimately so that this is what's kind of going on here so he asks this rhetorical question he says well what's easier to forgive sins or to say pick up your bed and walk and it's kind of, it's a rhetorical question because you could say um it it's a double double edged thing on one hand on the from a fleshly perspective from a worldly perspective it's easier to forgive sins right, because they're just, like, to the world, it's just words, right? To to the scribes, it's just, um, well, to the scribes, they recognize what the forgiveness of sins entails. But kind of from a fleshly perspective, right, if someone says, Jesus says, what's easier to say? Well, in one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because that's not something that's visible, right? But from a spiritual perspective, it's actually easier for Jesus to perform a miracle than it is to forgive sins, and you can see that, uh, for instance, in that Jesus. There's other people that do miracles in the Bible, right? The prophets in the Old Testament do miracles. Elijah does miracles. In the New Testament, Peter does miracles, right? Um, in the in in Acts, right? The apostles do miracles, right? They heal people. Um, and, and they're given that authority and that power by, by Jesus to do that, right? But only Jesus can forgive sins, right? And then he uses the prophets and the apostles and the pastors uh, to speak that and proclaim that forgiveness uh, to, to the people, right? So we get into the office of the keys stuff there, but we'll put that aside for now. So, Um, there's this kind of rhetorical question, right? Where he says, well, what's easier to say? Well, on one hand, one's easier to say. On the other hand, the other's easier to say. Um, But Jesus then, after he's already said the one, after he's already forgiven the guy's sins, which is really Jesus' main point, right? That's the main thing. That's what he wants to do. After he's done that, then he says, in order to show you that I also have all the authority in heaven and on earth, right? And then Jesus Jesus is gonna say this at the end of the gospels, right? In, In Matthew, at least, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? Both to, for, the, for the body and the soul, right? All authority has been given to me. And um, he says, in order to, to show you that I have the authority and the power on earth to forgive sins, he says, all right, I'll do both. Now pick up your bed and go home, right? And he does. And immediately he arose, took the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right. Um, I don't think I have any major notes on the, those last verse there. Okay. Oh, I guess one note I had there is that what's interesting there is the audience that Jesus is talking to is the scribes. And um, he went out of the presence of them all, so probably the crowds and the scribes, and they were amazed. They were all amazed, right? So it says all were amazed there and glorified God, saying we never saw anything like this. So right now... Even the scribes are amazed. So later on, the scribes are going to turn on Jesus, but that hasn't actually happened yet. Is it right now, the scribes are just trying to figure out what's going on. So I wanted to give the scribes a little bit credit because you know, normally we're, we're dunking on the scribes, but um, right now, that's not actually happening yet. So All right, we'll pick up at verse uh, 13 next week. Any final questions or comments? All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you that you have given all authority to Jesus on heaven and on earth to forgive sins and to heal us. And we pray that you would send us your spirit, continue to give us the knowledge and the words of Jesus that we may know the forgiveness of sins and the peace of Christ that we have in him. We pray that you would bless us today as we worship in spirit and in truth. And we pray that you would continue to be with us always through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.